Yushla is a Kolutan Your Excellency, the President of the Hellenic Republic, Vice Rector, Ministers, Ambassadors, and Friends. I would like to express my profound thanks to you, Rector, Chair of the Faculty of the English Language and Literature, uh, to all in the School of Philosophy, and indeed to this fine academic community, for the honor that you have bestowed on I am grateful also for your generous citations and for the warm welcome which you have extended to Sabina and myself, to the representative of the Irish government accompanying me, Minister Doherty, and to the delegation that has accompanied from Ireland. The School of Philosophy is one of the four original schools, I understand, created at the time of the university's foundation being the first of the modern Greek state. And I'm aware also of your many distinguished graduates, which of course includes President Pavlopoulos. I'm very grateful to the President indeed for the honors and the hospitality which he extended to, to myself and to those traveling with me yesterday, and which made for us a most memorable day in Athens. As the President and I stood together during our national anthems yesterday, I felt deeply moved as I reflected on the rich history which we share. Our two nations stand indeed at opposite corners of this continent, yet it is easily recognized what connections we've had from the earliest and even more important, what we might share together in the future. As we participate in the making of a union of European publics, one that can acknowledge, respect, and celebrate diversity, what we both bring to such an endeavor is a valuable experience. It includes the production and preservation of intellectual work, an interrogation of how life is to be lived, an historical struggle for independence, a national family that includes in both of our cases a large and valuable migratory component. We are not, in any sense, either of us, then backward countries, incapable of giving a moral inclusive dimension to life or the economia on which it might be based. First, as to ancient times, Ever since the Greek explorer Pythias of Massalia recorded the first encounter between the Hellenic and Irish worlds, our connections have grown in scale and complexity. It is an encounter which has continuously enriched the Irish mind and expanded our experience. My native landscape, bounded by Galway Bay to the north and the River Shannon to the south, was first described and mapped by a Greek geographer, Claudius Ptolemy, writing Alexandria in the second century AD. And among the first and perhaps the greatest of Irish navigators, said Brendan, most likely used Ptolemy's maps and navigational aids some 400 years later, when he became the first European to reach the North American continent. Both of our peoples have been travelers. For the journeys we have attempted, we have constructed myths of gods made human in their weakness and told stories of humans and their aspirations to be godlike have fallen to being merely heroic. We share the sea, the importance of the interpretation and symbolism of a journey, migration, island life, land, possession and dispossession. Navigation and exploration have been at the center of both of our experiences as migratory peoples. It has defined our intellectual development too. The journeys undertaken not just over water to new places, but within soul journeys. Soul journeys that test and extend the frontiers of human understanding. The Irish poet Paula Meehan captures this sense of journeying and the daring that so often characterizes it. I've always loved thresholds, the 
stepping over the shape changing that can happen when you jump off the edge into pure breath and then the passage between the inner and outer. Paula Meehan's lines are of course a distant echo of words spoken by Socrates to Mino just a short distance from where we are today. That we shall be better and braver and less helpless if we think that we ought to inquire. That is a theme upon which I am ready to fight in word and deed to the utmost of my power. When the learning then of classical Greece was receding from memory in Western Europe, an inquiring Irishman schooled in Greek, John Scotus Arugina, who had translated the work of Dionysius the Arapagad, patron saint of Athens. Arugina championed the primacy of reason and upheld the Greek tradition of bold philosophical speculation in the 19th, 9th century Carolingian court. And I read an essay from your president on the very same theme about the importance of rationality. But may I suggest, however, that perhaps a hubris can come with such a privileging of the rational above all possible sources of truth, wisdom, knowledge, or insight. Wisdom of the soul has only a partial reliance on reason. Returning to the influence of Greek learning on the more educated and fortunate in Ireland, it was profound. For example, around 5,000 editions of Greek and Latin authors appeared in Dublin between 1700 and 1791. Indeed, it was an Irish scholar, Robert Wood, who first proposed that Homer's was an oral rather than a literary voice. It was another Irishman, James Joyce, who gave Homer's voice, of course, as you have heard, a 20th century inflection. It is rightly said that the Joyce we know could never have existed without Homer and Aristotle. One of our contemporary Hellenists, Professor Fanner Rupert, said, it is arguable that Aristotle next to Homer was Joyce's greatest master. But Joyce was also influenced by his encounter with contemporary Greece. He arranged for the cover of Ulysses to be printed in the colors of the Greek flag, white letters on a blue field. The wall of his apartment in Paris was decorated with a Greek flag obtained while in Trieste. And there he sought out and enjoyed the company of Greek expatriates as well in wartime Zurich. He learned a repertoire of Greek songs from his friend Paul Ruggiero. And when he died in 1941, a Greek lexicon was found on his desk. There is significance too in the fact that while not competent in speaking the ancient language, he spoke the contemporary vernacular Greek of his time. The first holder of the chair then of ancient history at Trinity College, much later, Professor J.P. Mahathy, epitomized this engagement with the contemporary Greece of his times. Mahathy approached his subject through its people and communicated this love of travel, discovery, and collection to, among others, his celebrated pupil, Oscar Wilde, whom he sought to save from what he saw at the time was popish influences. Over 140 years after it was written, his love for Greece and its people is palpable in his rambles and studies in Greece. Recently reissued with a very fine commentary from my former colleague, Professor Brian Arkins of NUIG. Mahathy is, however, also guilty on occasion of that imperialist mind that was and still can be dismissive of other cultures other than its own. An example might be his remarks on the futility of achieving the standards of the British Constitution by people such as the Greek people at the time of his travels. What is closest to my own memory as a child in County Clare is an often recalled feature of past Irish rural life as to the place of Greek. I'm referring to the place which the classical tradition long held in the popular mind through the teaching and informal rural hedge schools of Greek and Latin and the foundation myths of both. I believe this was unparalleled anywhere else in Europe. In my own county of Clare, 
There were 275 such hedge schools in the year 1824. Their literary expression is found, for example, in the character of the rural hedge schoolmaster Hugh Moore O'Donnell in Brian Friel's play, Translations, which is set in the year 1834. Though O'Donnell, the head schoolmaster, is forced to concede that while English may be the language of the future, he must persist in teaching Greek and Latin to his pupils. We feel closer to the warm Mediterranean, he tells the English officer, whose job is to impose an English form on Irish place names, Loch Adamnaka Neher. I am conscious that, too, for too many engaging with the Greek people, the Greek world of lived experience, the contemporary lived space of urban and rural Greece, with all its contemporary challenges, may sometimes get neglected. And I so hope that my visit is interpreted as a wish to engage with the present and future of the Greek people, as much as it is obviously an acknowledgement of the source of those foundational concepts in politics, discourse, and democracy, which have been the ancient Greek gift to humanity. In making then and deepening connections between Irish and Greek peoples, it is important to remember that Greece is not simply a philosophical archive rich in pickings for the ransacking. It is a people, it is a land of olives, of ships, of migrants, of villages, of science, technology, of people with a reconstructed language and a music that represents a fusion between tradition, the body, and modernity. And indeed, this is something we Irish should be able to understand from our own experience of changing languages. While the cultural affinity there between Ireland and Greece is beyond doubt, it is rooted not only in our culture, but also as you have heard in our mutual historical experience. Within that experience is a mutual experience of migration. And while this, of course, may be a common historical and sociological experience across Europe, it, it is proportionately of larger scale and given more importance in both of our experiences. Though rarely voluntary in the past, the impact of migration can be, for the person experiencing it, immensely enriching, conferring a capacity, in the words of Seamus Heaney, who so loved Greece, to live in two places at the one time, and in two times and the one place, a capacity to acknowledge the claims of contradictory truths having to, without having to choose between them. This is an insight, of course, given more centrality in literature than in politics. There is no better example of this capacity, perhaps in any literature, than Constantine Cabafi, whose work was wholly unconstrained by time or space. A man who, on his short walk to his desk at the Ministry of Public Works in Alexandria, could traverse 2,000 years of history, passing the site of a Byzantine church, the site of Hadrian's Egyptian palace, and of the spot where Alexander the Great's body was once displayed in case, encased in a gold sarcophagus. These being landmarks of three great eras in the experience of the Greek diaspora. Ian Forster's description of the poet, standing at a slight angle to the universe, could aptly be applied to any migrant in our history or refugee on our shores. In Ireland, as in Greece, the scale of our dispersal over time and space has been, as I have suggested, exceptional, to the point where, each for each of us, our sense of self must draw on the experience of our diaspora. We have to take into ourselves our migrant realities and transients. And this is reflected in our citizenship laws in each of our countries, which afford citizenship rights to the grandchildren of those born in Ireland or Greece. Migration, of course, in our current period, has been described as morally, politically, and economically, the defining issue of the 21st century. 
As the Irishman who headed the global forum on migration and development of the UN put it in a number of passionate statements on migration and the defense of the most vulnerable, he reminded us that the way we respond to the challenge, as he put it, reveals a great deal about the state of our society, the integrity of our communities, and the prospects for our collective future. He was referring to the global response, but he might equally have been referring to the response of individual states. In this regard, the word empathy, empathos, is Greek in origin, but was reclaimed and given affirmation in the contemporary period by Greece in the eyes of the world through the reception shown to those fleeing from crisis arriving on Europe's borders. Viewed this way, the hospitality shown by Greece to today's victims of war, expulsion, dispossession, and extreme nationalism is by any measure extraordinary. Ireland's response to the migration crisis, of course, has involved sustained participation in rescue operations in the Mediterranean and an attempt to give leadership at UN level, where we helped secure agreement on the 2017 New York Declaration, described by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees as a political commitment of unprecedented force and resonance filling what has been a perennial gap in the international protection system, that of truly sharing responsibility for refugees. I believe that our response in Greece as in Ireland is and will be best informed when it draws on our respective historical experiences. This university, founded just years before a devastating famine, killed upwards of a million Irish and forced another million to flee their homes for safer shores. In the same period, or slightly later, Greece has suffered multiple upheavals and refugee flows, including the devastation of the Greek community in Asia Minor in the 1920s. The challenge of displacement, of responding to refugee flows, is then one of several challenges now confronting our global community. Challenges that require an agreed global response, a response that will be adequate. While globalization of our recent decades has been built as it is on free trade, can be claimed to have benefited countless millions, lifting many from poverty. It has also given rise to unprecedented levels of inequality. The headline figures for our world are perhaps shaming. Ahead of this year's annual summit in Davos, it was calculated that nine billionaires, all men, control the same wealth as the poorest half of humanity, 3.6 billion people, and of course many of the poorest among them being women. This is not only an accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few, but it is also a statement as to the location of the power to determine, to determine outcomes for our world. Then too, is it not a challenge to democracy itself, would my ask, that powerful speculative forces within an international banking system, whose power has the capacity to dislodge even governments and dominate or undermine their policies, can be almost totally unaccountable in pursuit of an insatiable search for profit for their investors. I find it difficult to speak of such facts in the same time as I speak about moral concerns and the history of philosophy. This deepening inequality, accompanied by the reduction in the role of the state, the privileging of private consumption over public good, is fracturing societies, polarizing the discourse in so many democracies, and weakening cohesion between old and young, rural and urban, north and south. It is undeniable that the gains of global macroeconomic policy are being privatized, 
while the losses in social as well as in environmental terms are being socialised in the experience of so many in reduced provision for a shared public world. Yet it is not only the extension of the realm of what is unaccountable that threatens us, as for example in the ravages of unaccountable multinational practice in relation to the environment by corporations in so many parts of the world. Then too, there is the ingress on the lives of so many in the failure of creditors to take responsibility for the social consequences in the demands of debt management, demands such as cannot be met by citizens who are simply seeking the sufficiencies of life. It is not unreasonable to ask, surely, that macroeconomic policies and practices be tested for their social impact. The basic terminology of science and technology, I remind myself, of course, is Greek in origin. And as to science and technology in the modern period, there are obvious benefits that can flow, but the advance of technology may have its dark side too, creating anxiety in our societies, not merely over the future of work, which is obvious, but in its opening of new means to manipulate attitudes and tamper with the functioning of democracies, and of course, at its most detrimental level, assisting the proliferation of nuclear technology and the developments of new forms of weapons. None of this deflection on human and natural resources, let us remind ourselves, is inevitable. It is open to us to bring with new ideas, new moral convictions, new versions of connection between politics, peoples, ecology, ethics, and the peopled economics into being. We live after all, we must never forget, in a world of shared vulnerabilities. In his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize in Stockholm, your great poet Georgios Seferis reminded us, in our gradually shrinking world, everyone is in need of all the others. We must look for men wherever we can find them. Conscious that I am speaking this afternoon in a university, I am moved to repeat a question I have asked at other universities, including the Sorbonne and the London School of Economics. What then, given all of our challenges, is to be the response of public intellectuals? Are we doomed, as Martin Heidegger put it rather pathetically, that we are forced to accept, as he put it, to get it stepped? Surely not. The European street requires not only our answer, but our solidarity in turning ethical ideas into the lived experiences of our peoples. We need, as it were, a different gauge for our union and for our times. In terms of multilateral involvement, it is so, I'm so pleased to recognize and acknowledge how Ireland and Greece have been partners in peacekeeping, have worked together on the human, United Nations Human Rights Council, and how each has served with distinction on the United Nations Security Council. And indeed, we are to have ambitions to serve again in the coming years. Ireland and Greece, because of such multilateral commitments, are, as I have put it, very well equipped to play in a disproportionate role, this time in Europe, but also well equipped because of so many other factors. One is our journey to independence. We are each conscious of a distinct cultural identity and a cultural influence disproportionate to our size. Yet each have been dominated into the near historical period by a major power. In short, we each know something of the process involved in achieving sovereignty and attempting to use it in a new way. We have not always been successful, and when it comes to equality in terms of life chances, we both can recognize what at times a weak flame within nationalism, equality of economic life or equality of gender can be. Our attempts in both cases, however, have had to be made on the foundations left to us as the detritus of empires. 
In the past, I myself have written of clientelism, for example, in the Irish case, as Nikos Muzilis, among others, has written in the case of Greece. But I believe it is important to place such practices in context. After all, the abuse of the privileges of power from abroad or through the agency of native elites preceded any native inclination to search for either patrons or brokers. Such practices cannot be explained simply as an indigenous feature of political culture, a weak concept. If the field beneath the goose has been taken, it is for survival the mass of the people must scratch. That is why corruption at the top and clientelism near the bottom or at the local are of the same coinage. As to the struggle for independence itself, the Greek independence movement exerted an emotional pull on so many Irish. Irish writers of the 19th century, Thomas Moore and Lady Morgan, were among them. They wrote with empathy of the oppression of the Greek people under Turkish rule. 19th century Irish awareness explains the involvement of Irish men in the Greek independence movement. One of the most notable of these is very close to here and depicted in the beautiful stained glass windows of St. Paul's Anglican Church. Richard Church, born into a Quaker family in Cork, who became commander of the Greek land forces in 1827, assisted in the coup in 1843, which formed a constitutional government. And he argued at the Congress of Vienna for an independent sovereign Greek state. And he became a Greek citizen and lived out his later years here in Athens. And then too, in both of our cases, the long fingers of dying empire were stretched and can be discerned in the origins of both of our civil wars, the struggles of the 20th century, including, let us never forget, the Greek lives lost in the struggle against fascism are there as part of the history of a century that claimed so many young lives in war. For each of our peoples, our experience then is a rich one. It is an experience that contains, yes, moments of emancipation, but also moments of grief. Experiences that equip us well for the challenging of, of envisioning and constructing a European Union of Humanity shaped to meet the needs of our citizens. And we must become close again and active in our discourse sharing on a people-to-people -people basis. Our hopes, our challenges, and our indomitable courage to be indifferent, to endure, our values we can draw upon. Paul Valerie wrote in 1919 how after the needless catastrophe that was World War I, that represented the collision of empires at such great cost, he wrote, an extraordinary shudder ran through the marrow of Europe. We too in our times have felt a shudder, and more recently. Nowhere more so than during the recent financial crisis. And when that financial crisis became a sovereign debt crisis, I am so aware of the high price that was paid here by the Greek people. Though its impacts may have been felt more acutely here, this was never, as President Macron acknowledged in a recent speech here in Athens, a Greek crisis. It was a European crisis and a collective failure. Today, we find ourselves confronted by the challenge of a keen awareness that, in some respects, we have failed to live up to the needs and expectations of citizens of the European Union. Social cohesion has been weakened. And this is so evident in the rise of Euroscepticism, exclusionary forms of nationalism, and a form of populism that exploits fear, draws on reactions that are built on negative invocations of fear, including fear of the stranger. But these are not the root causes of the discontent in the European street. 
their own symptoms. To come to grips with our source, we need to go deeper, to do mind work. It is only when we take the necessary steps to address the underlying, underlying sources of anxiety, including social insecurity, the future of work, the yawning, deepening equality gap, that we can recapture the cohesion that was originally envisaged by our founders. We are not inventing the concept of the social when we speak of social Europe. Was it not there in all of the better language of the founders of the European Union, such as Altiero Spinelli and Rossi and others? The future of the European Union, I suggest, must be discussed from below, crafted from connections to the European streets. And this requires a process that is open, honest, and genuinely inclusive, that does not shy away from asking the most difficult, most challenging questions. It requires, above all, an honest critique, one that constitutes an attempt to reimagine and rebuild, and it must ring as authentic in the European street. We have been, quite frankly, in 10 times in terms of political economy. The recent references to a new interest, for example, in behavioral economics, in the work of the World Bank, seems clever and is welcome, but it is simply insufficient. It simply masks the manner in which social context was abandoned in the hegemonic economic policies of recent decades. And in doing that, disciplines such as sociology, political science, were issued in a narrow practice that had no tolerance for discussion as to the adequacy of theoretical insight, methodological rigor, or empirical validation in instrumental usage. We've had a poor, a lesser economics that at best can be descriptive of a set of measures that seeks to satisfy an ideological position rather than be of assistance in generating policy options that can be social in their reach. As I reflect on this, why, we might ask, has the work of philosophers, surely a great European strength, been the most neglected source of insight on the recent institutional history of the European Union? In its modern origins, economics was so much more closely informed by philosophy and ethics when it was at its best. And it had a formidable breadth. For example, Adam Smith's work on the wealth of nations was built on the strong foundations of his earlier theory of moral sentiments. Smith, of course, is irrevocably associated in the popular understanding with the notion that the pursuit of self-interest serves the common good. Hence the oft-quoted, but more often still misused, line from the wealth of nations. It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. But Smith had written in his earlier work, he'd underlined that, I quote, however selfish man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortunes of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it. The later Smith is remembered, if frequently misquoted, but the other earlier and foundational Smith rooted in our long traditions of humanism, ethics, and philosophy, is forgotten or neglected. Although Amartya Sen has attempted to draw attention yet again recently to the theory of moral sentiments. We need a new moment for political economy. We need to unmask the ideologically driven suggestion that there are no alternatives to the present narrow, insufficient, and socially dangerous model of economic thought with its assumptions that markets, not the state, should define citizens' welfare, security, or life chances. 
And in this regard, among others, the sociologist and philosopher Jürgen Habermas has drawn a distinction between the world of the family, civil society, and the public sphere, what he calls life world, and the world of state and instrumental logic of the modern economy, which he terms the system. His concept of the life world recalls in its origin the Greek concept of economy or economia, a concept rooted in the most fundamental unit of society, the household. I don't need to expand on that here. This is such a different definition of economics to, for example, or in contrast, to any agreement by the members of a cabal to pool their competences and resources for the purpose of achieving an enhanced accumulation that was beyond any of their individual efforts. An economic model that is based on a misreading of the later Adam Smith, for example, on the primacy of the economic system over the welfare of the individual and the community, of its separation from both, is surely an example of a deep source of our present crisis, of our lost cohesion. To quote Habermas again, on writing of the reliance we've had on such a model, it leads to a situation where, as he puts it, the mass of those who are not among the winners of globalization will now have to pick up the tab for the impacts of the real economy of a predictable dysfunction of the financial system. Unlike the shareholders, they will not pay in money values, but in the hard currency of their daily existence. You know well the truth of all this, for when the financial crisis became a sovereign debt crisis, Greek people paid, and continue to pay, a high price. It was not an accident. Yes, many bad decisions were made in many places and at many levels. But the most dangerous residue that remains is the temptation to sleepwalk to a crisis of, a crisis of unaccountability that is global as much as it's regional or national. Accompanying this economic challenge of a change of theory in the policy it produces is the political challenge the need to consider the political underpinning of our new Europe. The future of Europe cannot be a limited conversation between the strongest. If that were to be the totality of our new conversation, it would be worse than being merely insufficient. It would be exclusionary. It would be merely a pact. It would not be the stuff of a union seeking to go forward, achieve cohesion. So the debate on the future of the European Union then is a process that must begin with the right questions. How do we envisage that Europe of all the peoples? What should be its form? Is it to be merely a Europe whose differences are to be defined by geography, north versus south, east versus west? Or a Europe defined by differences in income, rich versus poor, or even worse, creditor versus debtor? Or one divided by size, whether large, medium, or small. Our most hopeful future, I believe, must begin with the citizen and with a fresh consideration of what constitutes citizenship of the European Union. One that goes beyond the formalities of citizenship, as Hannah Arendt reminded us that mature, meaningful citizenship demands participation across all institutions and requires that the potential for change through accountability is always within reach. I think to Uvamata Sensei, to participate fully in your society without shame is the definition of participation. Last month I had the opportunity to participate in a dialogue in Dublin at Dublin City University. It was the first of a number of planned consultations across Ireland initiated by the Irish government and on the future of the European Union, given added urgency because of our consideration of Brexit. Across Europe, I suggest, communities need to be enabled to contribute, given the confidence, offered a welcome, and in doing so, being encouraged to draw on their diverse and rich experiences. All that we need, their needs, for a society of sufficiency. And is it not better that we ensure that our institutions are empowered and responsive to such needs?
A robustly democratic European order requires, of course, a strengthening of the role of both the European Parliament and national parliaments, with deeper integration based on an acknowledged diversity and difference of conditions between their respective deliberations. And there must be an acknowledgement, and this is where we are called to account. This is where our authenticity is tested. Is there or is there not an aspiration for a levelling up, the achieving of inclusion, of meeting sufficiency in the basics of citizenship, nutrition, shelter, education, health, welfare? To achieve this, may I suggest we need a new literacy, a literacy that can carry citizen engagement with economic, social and cultural rights. And it is only by doing so that we can prepare ourselves and our European Union to face the great challenges of our age, the requirement for just and sustainable development, the need to address the causes and consequences of climate change, the need to address the root cause of war, hunger and exclusion which continue. Allow me finally to suggest two areas where I think progress can be made quickly with significant and immediate benefits to what happens with my call the life world of our union. The first is the role that culture can and should play in both shaping and securing the Europe of the future. I have noted the emphasis that President Macron placed on culture, on this aspect in his recent speech in Athens. And I welcome his emphasis on a Europe of heritage and on the need for the greater circulation of academic and artistic work around Europe. This, of course, builds on the pioneering work of Melina Mercuri, a true visionary and advocate for the concept of a cultural Europe. Someone who took the first steps to address the deficit that arose through the omission of a reference to culture in the Treaty of Rome, and who was the first to bring culture ministers, including myself, together in formal session. Melina Mercuri, however, we should never forget, located culture also and importantly in the contemporary and in the prospect of, of by the, to the future, as well as in the important heritage of the past. When we both served at the Council of Ministers, we often agreed that culture was a process of engagement with possibilities drawn from diverse sources, but also it created the capacity for what could be imagined, what was achieving excellence and what was achieving inclusion in the presence and how it all hung together. This is a far cry from adjusting the life choices of publics, particularly vulnerable members, to policies tested by the indicators of an untested model as in terms of its outcomes. May I suggest that measuring citizen welfare involves so much more than estimating consumer capacity. It includes taking account of the adequacy, I repeat again, of the means to participate fully in your society. Our work also in the future could usefully build on important critical work developed here in Athens by my friend the late Hatter Fisher, who pointed to the offensive stereotypical images of Greek people which emerged in the European media during the financial crisis and which revealed a serious cultural failure of European understanding. Hatter wrote, if Europe is to be connected through culture, he said, People have to find a way to meet and not bypass each other. I add my voice to that of my late friend Hatter Fishers and make a plea as to the need for respect, compassion and solidarity in the name of humanity. Such a vision of Europe underlines the important ways in which our societies should support closer connections, deeper understanding, achieve joy in sports grounds, bars and cafes, in valuing leisure, in placing a social value on time spent enjoying the company of the other. The second issue is the role of young people in assuring Europe's future. It would be hard to overstate the importance of programmes such as the Erasmus programme in building a common European civic identity. And I so agree with those who say it should be developed and expanded. And this is only one aspect of the exchange between our institutes of learning that has the capacity and must be to be developed. 
We must also look again at the way languages are taught and valued. Just think how positive it would be if every European citizen left school with at least one second language at a high degree of proficiency. And surely this is an empowering key to a union of empathy in pathos, where citizens genuinely understand each other, appreciate what we have in common, open themselves to enrichment, have the ability as well as the will to sustain a conversation about our ethical future. And there is a third language too, which has already been gravely neglected, both as a resource and as hope. I speak of the frameworks through which we perceive the world around us. It should be a source of deep concern that knowledge of the humanities, so long the bedrock of our education system, is now so neglected in the name of creating space for other disciplines. Such a neo-utilitarianism is capable of dislodging universities themselves from their primary role. The teaching of philosophy and the classics, after all, provides us with a code and a key to understanding. Philosophy provides a grounding in how we think. I suggest it is a fundamental requirement of active and constructively engaged citizenship. The Irish poet Michael Longley has described the classics as a crucial part of the map by which we know ourselves and find the way. In Samuel Beckett's play, Happy Days, the character of Winnie, immersed in the rubbish that contemporary life accumulates around her, finds some comfort in the fact that maybe all is not lost. A part always remains of one's classics to help one through the day. A part is not enough, and any consideration of Europe's future must surely, therefore, include a consideration of our curriculum and the supports for both student and academic exchanges. Jacques Delors, also a recipient of the high honour I have received today, picked up this theme when he spoke of the need to, as he put it, rekindle the idea, breathe life and soul into it. That is the essential imperative if we intend to give shape to the year that we so dearly wish for. And that, in its essence, is the challenge we face today. We find ourselves, I return to the image, we find ourselves at a threshold. Public language is losing its power to reflect private and social experience, and the capacity to harness this towards a wider good. And contemporary rhetoric is too often seen as stale and evasive. And such neglect as we make hands the initiative to demagogues who speak with a superficial directness and appear to promise honesty. I am wary of using the term populism loosely. It is a word often misused and misunderstood. There are, after all, in history, positive as well as negative uses of a popular language. But unless we find a way of filling this gap, restoring this connection, we risk the further spread of another more angry rhetoric, born of, alien born of alienation and a sense of exclusion dominating the European street. None of this is unrelated to the weakening of the state's responsibility for the public welfare in the last four decades. As a consequence of extreme, unaccountable market theory-informed policies that eschewed any ethical transparency and certainly any social impact test. It is not the case that the Greek people, or the Irish people, or any other people on the varying landscape that is called Europe, are incapable of inclusive democratic institutions or forms of life. It is the form of the state too that is important that we must debate, and the role that is allowed to it that matters. I believe that its form as a possible emancipatory, egalitarian, institutional, and yes, entrepreneurial presence, and as a space of public shared welfare, has too often been prevented by a nationalism that is not inclusive, that lacks a strong, a nationalism that lacks a strong, sustainable egalitarian core. This state, of course, in such circumstances undermined 
by forms of authoritarianism that will not yield power, by disabling localisms, by forms of immoral forms of familism. That history, however, should urge, not deter, either of our peoples or any of the peoples of Europe from the necessary reform or institutional innovation that is necessary or helpful. These are real and urgent issues for all of our European citizens. And the challenge is to the, in the finding of an appropriate shared language of ideals and practice. We are at a critical moment, yes, such as one already foreseen almost 40 years ago, when Odysseus Elitis addressed the Nobel Award ceremony, and he said, we are suffering from the absence of a common language, and the consequence of this absence can be seen. I do not believe I am exaggerating, even in the political and social reality of our common homeland, Europe. Eighty years ago, the class assistant poet Louis Magnus foresaw how the language of politics, even our classical heritage, could become devalued, trimmed to suit a political requirement, and in the process stripped of authenticity. He said, the glory that was Greece put in a syllabus, graded page by page to train the mind, or even to point to moral for the present age. How then do we find an appropriate language, equal to the challenge of our day? Over three decades ago, at the height of the conflict in Northern Ireland, Seamus Heaney searching for a way to address the conflict, and finding himself, as he put it, in the intersection of public duty and private calling, looked here to Greece for inspiration, to Georgia Cephalus, who had recorded poetry, recognizes no small or large parts of the world, its places in the hearts of men the world over. Such poetic voices suggest to us, yes, we can develop, even out of the most difficult circumstances, an appropriate language to address the major challenges of our time and our societies. A language that is authentic, responsive, ethical, responsible, and we must take the risks that are necessary in our public roles to achieve it. Your Excellency, the President of the Hellenic Republic, Rector, Ministers, Ambassadors, dear friends, thank you again for the honour you have conferred upon me today. I appreciate it greatly our opportunity for meeting, sharing as we should, I believe a common perspective about the future of Europe, about the challenges that lie ahead. Our meeting has been perhaps overdue. I spoke earlier of thresholds. We stand together, all of us, at a threshold as we look across and forward. Conscious, yes, of what went before, but I feel confident in the power and potential of our partnership to build a new future. And it is my particular hope that this visit will deepen our joint endeavor and that we can with confidence and take custody of, the, of ours and this vital European partnership and hand it to the new leaders that will emerge from this fine university who will speak truth not only to power but with love and care to the European street and all its broken spirits. Thank you, Mila Buikis, Grandma.